We're going to turn now to the story of Irish women in the world of foreign policy. The Department of Foreign Affairs is among the oldest of the ministries, as you can trace its origins all the way back to the first thought a century ago. And prior to independence in 1922, there were women working for the department in those early days. One example is a woman named Maura O'Brien. She lived in Barcelona prior to the Easter Rising of 1916 and in subsequent years, on various trips back to Ireland, got involved in the independence movement. In 1920, she offered her services to the First Dáil as a possible agent in Spain. And in early 1921, she officially took up just such a position. Her reports back to Ireland are housed in the National Archives. In them, we can see her attempts to lobby influential people and newspapers to influence public opinion in Spain in favour of the Irish cause. Report from May and June 1921. I established myself at this address on May 3rd, and issued the Madrid Bulletin number 1 on May 25th. I think Barcelona is all right. In Madrid, it is not so easy to manage the press. They are, in many cases, afraid of England. In the last fortnight, I have been doing the rounds of the newspaper offices. O'Brien lobbied the press and attempted to lobby politicians, making the case for Irish independence. This was typical of the kind of thing Sinn Féin emissaries were involved in at the time. I soon got to know some half a dozen Irish girls here. And I think it only right to say how devoted they have shown themselves to the cause, giving me every assistance in their power. Maura O'Brien was one of a number of women working in the Department of Foreign Affairs in this pre-independence period. But women embarking on a career in the department in a newly independent Ireland faced numerous challenges, like the marriage bar in the civil service, equal pay for equal work, and negotiating a traditionally male-dominated field. They faced these challenges while carrying on their work on the international stage. So who were these women and what did they achieve? Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Anne-Marie O'Brien, lecturer at Maynooth University and the author of the new book, The Ideal Diplomat, Women and Irish Foreign Affairs, 1946 to 1990. Anne-Marie, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Now, Sheila Murphy in 1946 became the first woman to receive a diplomatic appointment within what was then known as the Department of External Affairs. This came after 20 years of working in the department and I think paved the way for other women to follow in her footsteps. Tell us what we know about Sheila Murphy and how she actually came to get this appointment. Yeah, so Sheila Murphy has remained quite a mystery for historians. Um, We don't really know a lot about her educational background. Her story really begins in 1921 when she joined the Dáil Éireann Civil Service as a statistician. The following year, she joined the Department of Publicity or the Department of Propaganda, as it was also known. And in reality, the Department of Propaganda and the Department of Foreign Affairs there was not really much of a distinction between the two. So she worked there for until independence, until the establishment of the Irish Free State. And then the two departments amalgamated to become, as you said, the Department of External Affairs. And she joined the Department of External Affairs in this capacity. And from 1923 to 26, she worked as a secretary for James McNeil in London. And then she was brought back home to Dublin and she worked as private secretary to Joe Walsh. And really, although she was a private secretary, she was highly valued in the department. 
in the 30s she actually became archivist so she really held the department's memory and she was part of this core group of officials in the department so we have the likes of Joseph Walsh, we have Michael Wren, we have Sheila Murphy, we have Frederick Boland and these are really um, what Conor Cruz O'Brien described as a, a very tight-knit group of personnel. And she was in touch with diplomats for much of the period as secretary. And really, she was very important during the Second World War, remaining in touch with diplomats abroad, particularly in Europe. And she was really the focal point for officials when they wanted to contact Walsh. So Frederick Boland worked with her very closely in this period and he obviously realised the qualities and skills that she possessed because when Joe Walsh was appointed Ireland's first ambassador to the Holy See and Frederick Boland took over as secretary, one of his first acts was to give Sheila Murphy a diplomatic position. And this was a real turning point, I suppose, for women because up until this point, no woman had actually held a diplomatic position since 1922. And what was that diplomatic position? She became second secretary of the Treaty and Political Section, and she was the only official to work in that section at the time. But she served She served in other posts thereafter, so she was in, in Paris as a first secretary, and then later on she joined the delegation to the United Nations in the 50s. Now, in the early 1960s, she becomes assistant secretary in, uh, I think it was still the Department of External Affairs back then. How important a position was that? It was a a really, really important position. So ambassadors abroad implement the policy, the foreign policy of their country. However, those in headquarters, the secretary, assistant secretaries, councillors, etc., they actually formulate that policy. So at this stage, she's actually formulating the policy that will then be implemented abroad by Ireland's ambassadors, ministers and heads of missions. So it's really important. And in the broader context, she is one of the most senior female civil servants in the country at this time, probably the most senior with the exception of Thecla Beer, who, of course, was Secretary of the Department of Transport and Power. But Sheila Murphy was just below her as Assistant Secretary in the Department of External Affairs. So apart from Sheila Murphy, how many other women served in prominent positions in the Department of External Affairs stroke Foreign Affairs? Really, there was no other woman that worked in such a prominent position until the 60s. So in 1947, so the year after Sheila Murphy is appointed to her diplomatic position, Frederick Boland opened the competition examinations to women and Moira McEntee and Roisin O'Doherty were appointed as third secretaries to the department in 1947 and then Mary Tinney came on board in 1948 they worked their way up the, the diplomatic ladder in the same capacity as their male colleagues. So they worked in all of the areas in headquarters and then um, slowly they were all appointed abroad. So really, it's not until 1957 that Moira McEntee, she was appointed to the delegation to the United Nations. And this is where women really come into their own. However, the next really I suppose, important position or appointment was Mary Tinney's appointment as ambassador in 1973. So it took women a long time to actually get to them highly sought after positions in the department. 
Now, I know that Roisin O'Doherty fell victim to the marriage bar. Uh, she had to leave, I think, after about four years in 1951, as subsequently did uh, Maura McEntee, who, of course, famously marries Conor Cruz O'Brien. But she was the daughter of a former revolutionary, a Fianna Fáil politician, Sean McEntee, and was appointed to the Irish delegation at the United Nations. Tell us a little bit more about what could have been a stellar career in the Department of External Affairs, but it wasn't because of the marriage bar. Yes, so her memoirs, which I've really drew on widely for my research, she's quite self-deprecating in in her memoirs. And she said, really, she was only appointed to the delegation because of her romance with Conor Cruz O'Brien and he was allowed to pick his own team. But really, um, I, I argue with that fact because she was an extremely competent and skilled diplomat in her own right. So after the United Nations, she was um, appointed to the Council of Europe. She had already been in Spain at this stage. And she was, I would argue, the best um, female diplomat that we had. And as you said rightly, it was it was cut short. But I would argue that if she had remained in the department, it would actually have been Maria McEntee that would have became Ireland's first female ambassador, not Mary Tinney. Now, Josephine McNeil was Ireland's first female head of mission. Who was she? How did she get that position? What's the difference between a head of mission and an ambassador anyway? The head of mission is based in a legation, so it doesn't have full diplomatic status as what an embassy would with an ambassador. So that's they're the two differences. It's it's really um, a technicality. But she was James McNeil's wife, who was Governor General, um, and she was in London with him. And then after his death, it was the early 30s, he died, and she was politically active before then, actually. So in the pre-independence era, she was a member of Common Amon. But in the in the thirties and forties, she was a member of the Irish Housewives Association. She was part of the Cultural Relations Committee, and she was very active in Sean McBride's new political party, Clon the Publicta. And this is re- really an important point because it's really her political connections with McBride that got her the appointment to the Hague in nineteen forty nine, nineteen fifty. Was that controversial, the notion of a woman being head of mission, or did the Dutch see it differently than other countries might perhaps? Funnily enough, it was more controversial in the Department of External Affairs, and not because she was a woman, but because she was not a career diplomat. So up to this point, Ireland had never appointed somebody outside of the department to become a head of mission. So that was particularly controversial. The Hague actually was really accepting of McNeil. Their head of state was Queen Juliana and she was very accepting of McNeil and McNeil's reports revealed that she got on very well with her colleagues in The Hague. So the fact that she was a woman was not as controversial as what we might think or as what we might expect. And really, the Department of External Affairs, the appointment was very, very controversial for the fact that she was an outsider because of her connection with James McNeil as as his wife and the fact that she was actually quite old at this stage for an appointment. So at this stage, she was in her 60s or late 50s. So she was quite um, old to be appointed to that position. But of course, she wasn't paid the same as her male equivalents. 
No, she wrote to the department's secretary, Sean Noonan, complaining of this point that, number one, she didn't actually have a spouse to take on the household responsibilities, so the the entertainment um, responsibilities that go with a head of mission status, and the fact that she wasn't paid the same. And she was quite poorly paid, I suppose, or at least poorly in terms of what people might expect her to be paid. You know, she had difficulty purchasing the outfits that she would need for a person of her status. So yes, she was paid the same as her um, single male colleagues, but not her married male colleagues. Now, the Netherlands was enlightened, I suppose you could say, uh, in the context of the times when it came to accepting women as diplomats. Other European countries were not. Spain, Switzerland, Italy. Mm. How were women received in those countries? How were Irish female diplomats received in some of those countries? I suppose the short answer is they weren't sent to them countries. Moira McEntee was appointed to Spain um, in 1951 and really she got on quite poorly or at least her experience was quite uncomfortable in Spain. So they didn't regard her as a diplomat. They always thought that she was the secretary. And it was really, I spoke to Sean Donlan in my research, and he said that her experiences in Spain really lived on in the department. And therefore, women weren't sent to countries where they wouldn't be accepted. So the Vatican was another position that really it was only until recently that women were appointed there. Because, as he said himself, if a diplomat can't do their job, then what would be the point on sending them there? So if a female wouldn't be accepted, then she couldn't do her job. I presume the same applied to the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. The Middle East, the Lebanon, places like that. Hardship posts were really confined to men and particularly single men that wouldn't have a family. Now, we tend to think of our entry into the, well, it was then the European Economic Community in 1973 as being very, very important when it came to the change in the status of women. But earlier than that, quite a bit earlier than that, 1955, Ireland is admitted to the United Nations. Did women benefit from that? In a diplomatic context, they benefited because there was an international stage that female diplomats could then take part on. But the problem was with the United Nations was that women were generally pigeonholed into the third committee, which was the section for social humanitarian and cultural affairs. So these women were really pigeonholed into this uh, committee and that's where they tended to remain. Even Eleanor Roosevelt, who was part of the US delegation, she was placed into the third committee. In the wider context of the status of women, yes, it definitely benefited women. From the 1970s, we have, you know, the, the women's year, the women's decade from 1975 to 85. And from the late 1960s, it really embraced the second wave feminist movement and it asked its member states to set up their own commission on the status of women to see how women's roles could be promoted and, and, and how women could play a bigger part and a more important part in public life. Now, the 1970s, I think, saw a 
sizable influx of women into the department. And in the late 1970s, the first all-female mission was sent to Brussels that made news at the time. Uh, were they impressed in Brussels? Were they? We were obviously very impressed with ourselves. <laughs> were they as impressed in Brussels? Yeah, so it did, it did make news. It made the Irish Times um, and it was Women Diplomats to the Fore, I think was the title of the Irish Times article. But I spoke to two of the women who were appointed to that mission, Marie Cross and, and Kathleen White, and both said it really wasn't that big a deal when they were appointed, at least not in Brussels. You know, they, they're there to represent their country. They're They're not women diplomats. They're just Irish diplomats. And they were there to do a job and they did their job. One of the important factors was that there was enough women in the department to actually take on a third secretary, a first secretary and an ambassador level. So that was really the important factor for the department. But um, in terms of the reality of the situation and their responsibilities, it didn't actually make um, an iota of difference, um, which was really surprising for me. Is there a key moment? Are there any key moments in the late 70s, early 80s that stand out for you uh, when it comes to the status of women in what is very definitely now the Department of Foreign Affairs? Yeah, I, I think there's there's two key moments. So the first key moment is 1973, entry into the EU, or what was then known as the EEC, which facilitated the removal of the marriage bar and equal pay for equal work. And the marriage bar was particularly important because it meant that not only were women entering the department in larger numbers than than ever before, but they were remaining in the department. So they were reaching the managerial positions. And this really takes me on to the second key moment, which was in the mid-1980s, when these women who had entered in the early 70s were now reaching councillor level and above, and actually changing how the department operated for its diplomats and its families. In the mid-1980s, Marie Cross became head of personnel and she really um, was a driving force in terms of promoting family life, a work-life balance. So she implemented planned postings that would take place in the summer while children, uh, diplomatic children were on holidays from school. So they wouldn't be posted at all times of the year and families could really actually plan their move abroad. Also, we have what I should mention, um, the Irish Foreign Affairs Family Association coming into being um, in the late 70s, more commonly known as IFAFA, and they're still going today. And these are the wives of diplomats who also facilitated a better work-life balance for um, Irish diplomats. They lobbied the department for the payment of children's school fees abroad bereavement travel. So if a a close family member died, the department would pay for their travel home. So that was really the second key moment in in my research, that the department couldn't operate as if their diplomats were single men who could go anywhere at, at, at a moment's notice. They were men, they were women, they had children, they had family responsibilities and the department really had to take this um, into consideration in its postings abroad. Do we still have a way to go? Are there things that you'd like to see in future in relation to women in the foreign service and indeed in the civil service, but in the, you know, specifically the foreign service, which is uh, what you're, you're concerned with? Absolutely. So I should preface my answer by saying that the department is very supportive of gender equality, gender balance, and it's proactive in 
trying to get this balance of gender in the department. But yes, there is still a way to go. So we've never had a female minister for foreign affairs. We've never had a female secretary for foreign affairs. We've never had a female ambassador to London female ambassador to Germany. So there's still quite a way to go. But in terms of parity, I think the department is is really implementing gender parity at the moment. So the third secretaries that came in in 2019, I think there was one more woman than there was men. I think there was 12 women and and, and 11 men. It's really proactive in in its response. But yes, there, there is positions that need to be filled by women. In the civil service in general, there's still a way to go for women. So childcare remains a big issue. The gender pay gap remains an issue. But this isn't specific to foreign affairs. This is broader across the Irish civil service. So there are still things to be done, but um, women are definitely uh, coming to the fore, as the uh, Irish Times pointed out. Well, if you'd like to know more, Anne-Marie's book is called An Ideal Diplomat, Women and Irish Foreign Affairs 1946 to 1990. It's published by Four Courts Press. Dr. Anne-Marie O'Brien, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Fiona Lucia McGarry. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.